joining us and missed our little introduction last week. We are doing a series this winter on the question of what it means to be the church in the world. Uh, we sort of tried to uh, take a broad uh, stroke last week and get at least a little bit of the sense of temperature <laughs> of where we are socially and understanding what it means for me to be a Christian and function in the world. Um, we tried to mention that there was a divide last week between uh, a younger generation and an older generation. Uh, and I tried to make an appeal for at least some measure of sympathy that might be extended to both sides, that the younger generation might have a little more patience with the older generation because we're entering a world, frankly, that is quite foreign to anything that we've known, uh, at least in the last 50 to 60 years, I would argue. Uh, but also an appeal to the older generation to have more sympathy for the younger, because in many ways some of their record is being called, uh, some of your record is being called onto the table. Uh, and so in that sense, there's a sense in which we are able to provide and extend some measure of humility in their direction. What I want to talk about this morning, though, is to begin to, to frame out the discussion of who we are in the world. Uh, in other words, if we're going to talk about the church and the world, we've got to cover those two big topics. First of all, what does it mean to be the church? What is our identity really about as the church? And then in the weeks to follow, we've got to figure out what we mean when we say the world. I think Christian-type people use that sort of phraseology all the time. Those people are being worldly. Uh, you know, we really don't mess with things of the world. But when it comes to living your life uh, in doing a job and working in various spheres... Those questions immediately sort of present themselves. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to try to carve out a little bit of how the Bible places you. Does that make sense? Where it locates you as a believing person in the world. Now, what does that mean to be a part and in the world? But today what I want to look at is sort of um, this idea of Christian uh, identity that is wrapped up in what the Bible calls the church. And I want to start by this little quote, and I'm going to see if you can sort of make a guess as to who said this. So this author said, but as it is now our purpose to discourse of the visible church. Visible church, of course, is the church not in that sort of spiritual sense, which are the really true believers. <laughs> if you ever start thinking that your, your church is the essence of the invisible church, we need to have a conversation about that. Um, but this idea that the visible church, in other words, this, you know, the, the fact that we gathered, you know, the, the church in a steeple and open up and there's the people kind of thing. Let us learn for her single title mother. This article was being written uh, at a time when people regularly referred to the church as the mother of God's people. What? How useful. Nay. How necessary the knowledge of her is, since there is not other means of entering into life unless she conceive us in the womb and give us birth, unless she nourish us at her breasts, and in short, keep us under her charge and government until, divested of mortal flesh, we become like the angels. Moreover, beyond the pale of the church, no forgiveness of sins, no salvation can be hoped for. What? <laughs> you may be thinking, like we're using this as a negative example, right, Les? I ain't never heard anybody talk like that ever. That this body, the visible church, not the invisible church, but the visible body of believers is the normal place where believers are conceived, they are given birth to, nurtured, 
and kept under charge in government until they die. That's what it means to be divested of mortal flesh, and we become like the angels. And then he goes so far as to say, is if you don't have the church, you don't even have forgiveness of sins and salvation could be hoped for. Wow, it's a little over the top. Anybody got any guesses of who said it? You guessed it, John Calvin. I wrote it in really small letters in case you're offended by that name. Wait a minute, what? They believe what here? Well, in many ways, sort of Presbyterian and Reformed tradition vests a lot of energy into the, 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 the issues surrounding Calvinism. But here's my point. You really don't have to be invested in uh, what we might call evangelicalism in our world today uh, without realizing this sounds over-the-top weird for someone to talk this way. How is it even possible for a, sort of this giant of Western civilization, which even if you disagree with this theology, you have to say that Calvinism was a massive uh, foundational issue for Western civilization. How would he ever want a discourse and conversation this over-the-top about the church. <laughs> well, part of the reason for us wanting to sort of dive into this topic um, has been really speculating why I think this is true. Why what Calvin is saying is true. Why did the doctrine of, of the church, however, in our day, how do we get to someone saying stuff like this 500 years ago at the dawn of the Reformation to where we are today to where the church is, is barely even talked about at all? Um, What was the nature of the change? Well, my point is this. For a few generations of Americans, what people mean when they say the church, that idea, is nowhere near close to the self-definition that believing people had throughout the ages. Let me say that again. For some reason, in the early dawn of the 21st century, the idea of the church, even the simple uh, uh, language of using our, to describe ourselves as Christians as the church has gone to the wayside. But for anybody beyond, I would say, about 200 years ago, um, it was all over uh, the, the, their conversation. It was a vital part of their conversation. It was part and parcel of what it meant to even be a Christian. Isn't that weird? <laughs> so what I want to do is to dive into the book of Ephesians very briefly this morning to look at some of these images I realize I'm talking to a room that probably in that sense has no real grasp over or even language to talk about what the church is. But the Bible gives us these very rich metaphors as it does. And so I want to flip through the book of Ephesians. So flip in your various eye devices and whatnot to that thing. Uh, And let's kind of look through three themes. We're going to talk this morning about how the church is a building. Number two, we're going to talk about how the church is a body. And then finally, we're going to talk about how the church is a bride, a building, a body, and a bride. And what I want to do is, is I want these metaphors to begin to shape what we think about what we are doing here this morning. How helpful. How helpful. We're going to talk about why you got up this morning and came to church. See, don't act, don't act like Sunday school is not relevant. Don't even act like that. Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22. Would someone be willing to read for us Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 for me out loud really nicely? Save my voice. Who's got it and could read it? You, believing people, are being built into a dwelling place for God and for His Spirit. These are being built into you, right? In other words, the church, the people of God, are like a building. Now, notice what it did not say. It did not say that the church is primarily supposed to live its life out in a building, even though buildings are extraordinarily helpful. 
see the rooted campaign um, for evidence to that particular fact. <clears throat> but Paul is saying that the people of God are a building. In other words, one of the metaphors he wants you to use as you think about yourself as a Christian is to think of yourself as if this thing of what it means for us to be together is that we're like a building. And what does he attach that to? Well, he talks about this idea of the temple. And when we start talking about temples, we got to do a little bit of history here because that's not immediately relevant to people in our day. The temple mount, the place, the center of Jerusalem was for a Jewish person uh, an extremely important piece of, the, of their city. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a ton of nostalgia attached to this particular place. When a Jewish person walked into the temple of God, it was not a functional place to have worship, which is the way in which we tend to think of it, right? Uh, I don't know. These pews are just not comfortable. We should have something more comfortable. Well, when God sort of instructed his people to build a place where this people would come and worship, He sort of invested the structure with itself imagery that talked about who they were as a people. Does that make sense? In other words, the architecture, the very architecture, was trying to say something about what it was like to deal with him. Now, any good architect will tell you that everyone would love for there to have that particular meaning uh, tied to it. But a Jewish person would have said and would have understood that in this structure, and I found a nice little picture of it here uh, on the interwebs, um, in this little structure that was in this little fenced area, you had this, this dwelling place, this little worship center. And on the inside of this building, there were actually two rooms. The first one uh, was the front room where there were some various pieces of furniture located there that had meaningful significance to the, 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 the ceremonies as people would pass in. But the very big deal was in the back. In the back back here, there was a room that was in the shape of a perfect cube. And there was a very important piece of furniture that was there called the Ark of the Covenant. You know, what's really tragic about doing campus ministry for 25 years is when you look and say, you know, like the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, with every passing year, you get a blank stare. I've never seen that movie. How is it possible that we have raised a generation of young people that don't understand the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Shame on us parents. Um, (laughs) Bear with me. It was a little box, okay, and it was gold, and it had angels' wings on the top of it that were touching, and it had poles that you carried it on along these little rings that were on the side. And God said, this is going to be a very unique piece of furniture because I am going to appear over it. And sure as shooting, when God dedicated this, this tabernacle the first time, like he came down in visible form, a big ball of fire. And a big giant cloud of smoke covered the entire area so that even the priests that are so busily working there couldn't do their job because they couldn't see. And they were scared witless as well. Can you imagine that kind of story being passed down along the generations? That you could even go to the temple and sort of look from the outer courts and know that somewhere back in there was this room, this place where God himself had actually appeared? Amazing. Absolutely shocking. Well, it's even more shocking as you watch the progress of this through the Old Testament go from being sort of a tent that can be transported and picked up to a full-blown brick-and-mortar temple. The temple did the exact same thing. Solomon, of course, built the big one. The son of David, uh, King David, decided he would go like way over the top and use it and take some years to complete this thing. The materials are incredible. There's all these chapters in, in uh, Kings and Chronicles that will talk, talk to you about all that. 
But what's fascinating was, is after that temple was destroyed by foreign invaders into Israel, uh, sometime, you know, 500 some odd years before uh, the New Testament begins, there began to be this talk about what would happen with the future of the temple. The prophets, as they were ministering to God's people without this building, which had to, had to really stink, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, you had this awesome, amazing building that had all this presence and fireballs and stories around it and whatever else. Now it's not there anymore. And the prophets began to deal and preach to the people to help them feel better about the situation. And the gist of what they would say could be summed up in Jeremiah 3, 16 and 17. Because Jeremiah is talking about that ark, the ark, like in the movie. He said to a generation over 40 years old. He said this, in those days, men will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. As if you would say that when you introduced it. It will never enter their minds or be remembered, especially by people who didn't see the movie. It will not be missed. It doesn't say that in Jeremiah. It will not be missed, nor will another one be made. Ready for this? Because at that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Now be very careful. Because your average Jewish person would not have said by that, Oh, weird. So we're going to trade this little box of furniture for a big city. So if we just can kind of get back to the actual physical locale of Jerusalem, then that's where the big ball of fire is going to come down in the future. Is that what you're saying? It's not what they mean. A Jewish person wouldn't have thought that. A Jewish person would have known what Jeremiah was saying when he said all Jerusalem will be the throne of the Lord. They would have said, we as the people of God. Jerusalem became a metaphor for Jewish people for the people of God as they gathered. Okay? So the people of God waited. The Jewish people waited 400 years before the last prophet in Israel rises up and the time in which all of a sudden this, uh, uh, this poor uh, a Jewish man goes out into the desert and starts telling people to repent because the Son of God is coming. He's at hand. His name's John the Baptist. And all of a sudden he finally baptizes this one who was like, this is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And then this guy comes along and starts making claims about himself, like saying, hey, you know, all the stuff you've been waiting for, it's all here. I'm bringing it. <laughs> it's all mine. And he even attested to the fact with all these miracles and all these signs, and he preached these crazy sermons that people were going back and listening to him being like, I don't know. It just sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Um, and then all of a sudden they go along, and then he kind of starts to make some political statements about overthrowing the temple, because they had a big temple by this time. Herod had built, King Herod had built his own by this time. He's kind of like, I'm going to tear all that down. And everybody's like, oh, he's seditious. And they're like, oh, we need to get rid of him. And, of course, he kept sort of preaching to people about how he was the point, and he knew God, and he was God. And the Jewish people kind of freaked out. They're like, we got to do something about this guy. So they finally executed him. But, of course, you know the story. I mean, three days later, he's risen again from the dead, and his disciples are like, oh, my goodness, he rose from the dead. That means all this stuff is true. And then right before he leaves, he's like, look, I just want you to go back to Jerusalem, hang out for a little while, and I'm going to send somebody to help you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But for now, the Spirit's going to lead you into everything that you need. So a few days later, they're all gathered up in the temple, uh, in the temple grounds under this big porch that wrapped around the outside called Solomon's Porch. And they're all sitting around praying together. And suddenly while they're praying, this big old wind comes swooshing through the room. And all kinds of crazy things start to happen. One of which is, 
lots of people start talking in languages that they didn't grow up learning, which is weird and crazy. But there was this whole problem with the, with the, the, Babel, the temple of Babel back in, the, in Genesis. Remember that? You know, at Babel, everybody's language got confused, so they would disperse. But in this place, there under Solomon's temple, everybody's language became the same, so they could unify around this. Now look, that's weird, and another lesson. But the other crazy thing that happened was, is suddenly there were these little flames of fire resting on everybody's heads. You remember that? And you're kind of like, that is the weirdest thing. Was their hair on fire? When I, you know, it's funny, the, the, the old King James translated that word flame of fire as a tongue of fire. And I really thought that their tongues were on fire. And that had something to do with the fact that they were speaking another language. Maybe they just misunderstood them. I mean, if their tongues are on fire, uh, then people didn't <laughs> Bear with me. The youthfulness of my, my youth there. But the bottom line was this. The image was the same. No longer... Is the fire going to come down here to where we locate the presence of God in a single spot? It's now going to be in the hearts and minds of every single believing person. Immediate presence (laughs) so that God can draw near and sort of move close to you in a way in which it was never really manifest in the Old Testament, at least not this obviously. Fascinating story. Um, So the point is this, Um, God is saying that I have taken my people and shifted their emphasis from being worried about a particular piece of terra firma in the Middle East right now into a worldwide global movement of the people of God. Now look, when I was growing up, I'm going to make this as a small little brief uh, commercial here, there was a fair amount of, uh, of anxiety that was attached to my family's uh, hearing that things being done around the nation of Israel and Jerusalem in particular caused a great deal of upheaval. Uh, we were very worried about what went on in Israel because we were assuming that there was the spiritual significance that was attached to those people and that spot of terra firma in the Middle East at this point. Um, I do think that one of the reasons why the Reformed tradition has never really found itself sort of torn up about things going on in the Middle East in our day is because we realize that to get worried about what's going on in that place is really regressive if the doctrine of the church is true, okay? In other words, the Reformed tradition had not spent itself worrying whether or not God's agenda for the people of God was going to be centered on what happens in the Middle East. Uh, Well, you know, Israel, I've always heard, is the holy land. (laughs) No, it's not. Look at the bloodshed. ain't holy at all. I'll tell you what's holy. What's holy is where the Spirit of God shows up in the hearts and minds of His people. This, the church, was God's intention. That's the other thing that I was taught when I was growing up was that the church was a bit of a parenthesis, that God was sort of marching along with his plan uh, throughout the Old Testament with the Jews. But the Jews were rebellious and killed Jesus. So he was like, okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's go with plan B for a little while. We'll go for a couple, I don't know, a thousand years with the church, right? We'll do them for a while, but eventually we're going to pick up this whole agenda with Israel again. I don't think that's the right way to view those particular texts. I'm going to come right out with it and say that the Jewish nation no longer has covenantal significance with God's agenda in the world as a geopolitical entity. <laughs> I wish I had a photograph of people's faces right now being like, 
what? And yes, we dealt with this this week. You need to hear me. I have no idea. I am no geopolitical scientist when it comes to the value of recognizing Jerusalem as a capital or not. La, 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 la. I don't know. I'm ignorant as you can possibly be. I do feel confident to say that if our worries about what we do with Jerusalem are attached to a biblical idea about it, we might have gone on the wrong way. See, you didn't know you were going to get indigestion when you came to church this morning. Wait a minute. How dare he? We can talk about that later sometime during the Q&A here in just a few minutes. Look, this was the point. In 1 Timothy 3, 14, Paul would say this, Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. What is God's household? The church. And listen to this phrase he attaches. You need to have this one underlined in your Bibles. Which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Whoa. (laughs) The church, Paul is saying, is the very support system of the truth of God. Truth in the world and in the lives of believers has no stability. It's what a foundation does for you, right? If it doesn't have the church. The church, what we're doing here is the very support system for the truth itself. Now, some of you are saying, whoa, 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 I I, I was raised Catholic. Uh, That sounds a little Catholic. Notice I did not say that the church is the fountainhead of the truth. (laughs) The Bible is the only fountainhead of the truth. It's the only place where we know God's word is speaking with absolute clarity. What I'm saying is, no, the church is not the fountain of the truth, but it is the place where the truth will thrive the best and be protected the best. It will be the place where we are required, the arena where all of our deepest longings will be exercised. Look, here's the point. Without the church, you simply cannot understand the Bible. God has commissioned the church, not seminaries, not theologians, not well-intentioned institutions, to be the caretaker of his word. In other words, it is, in some sense, our role in gathering here to take the preservation of truth, the faith once delivered, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Are you ready for this? Pass it on to the next generation to teach our children, to tell them how one ought to conduct oneself in the household of God. Um, look, I understand that this sort of uh, pushes against people because they're like, oh, no, the priesthood of all believers. I grew up hearing the priesthood of all believers. I, I, I can decide what the Bible means myself. Um, you know, that's, the, that's what the Reformation was about, less that everybody could pick up the Bible and interpret the way in which they want to interpret <laughs> That's a really bad way to define what the Reformation was about. Because what you do is you kind of turn the Bible into a wax nose so you can fashion anything that you want to believe. By the way, in my experience in campus ministry, again, for all these years, there's a lot of students that will bounce from sort of Protestant areas into the Roman Catholic Church, sometimes even Eastern Orthodox expressions of that. And you want to know what their number one reason is? In my 25 years of having these conversations and lost a lot of folks to the Catholic Church, Over and over again, they said, because you guys don't have any place to appeal to a certainty about Scripture. Now, my job at that moment is to be like, if you think they're certain about what the Scripture teaches, you got another thing coming. Just because you established the the, the Pope in there and all of the cardinals doesn't mean that there's a whole lot of certainty historically about how the Catholic Church does doctrine. But what they want is they want a mechanism. They want a mechanism that will lead them into something that's certain. 
And of course, I want to say, first of all, I'm not sure you're going to get that kind of certainty. Second of all, the Bible has given us something. (laughs) And it's this. It's us as the body of Christ to be about this. Michael Scott Horton said, of course, people were never supposed to use the Bible as a wax nose to be shaped by private subjective opinion, which sola scriptura has come to mean in some circles today. Remember sola scriptura, scripture alone? It's one of the great Reformation principles. He says, rather, sola scriptura meant that all believers had the right and the responsibility to read, understand, and obey God's word. Here it is. With the rest of the church. In other words, we are to read and understand the Bible along with the church. Yes, we have the privilege of being able to dive into it ourselves and glean truth from it ourselves, but we cannot do that in isolation. Why? Because the church is a building. The church is a building, and the foundation of the church is central to it. Okay? That feels like that was a little much. I'm just, I'm just, just checking. All right, I don't know. Inside, internally, feels like it was much. Let's do something much quicker and much easier. The church, we then find out, is a body. Someone read for me Ephesians 4, uh, 3 through 6. Anybody got Ephesians 4, 3 through 6? Let's see, get the next image that uh, Paul uses to describe the church. Who's got it? Just out loud and let's be spontaneous and adventurous. All right. Church is a body. In other words, Paul is saying the church is unified. How does that word fit you? Do you ever think to yourself, yeah, church is totally unified in our day? <laughs> uh, when, when Brian Habig and I were doing some research many years ago for a little book on the church called The Enduring Community, um, we found a, a statistic, this is 2002, uh, that at present in American, uh, uh, American sort of um, a denominational life, there were 20,000 denominations. Not 20,000 churches, 20,000 denominations. So, you know, talking about like unity among churches in America feels kind of blindly unrealistic. But I think actually we need to hear Paul's words on this one because what he's saying is, I don't want our unity to be based on some sort of wishful thinking. You know, back in the mid-90s, the the phrase that kind of got popular around the Rodney King uh, beatings was, you know, can't we all just get along uh, and sometimes that's as much as people have when they're talking about the body of Christ, you know, is can't we all just get along? But listen to what Paul is saying. Paul is centering his appeal to be unified, not on like the goodwill of the people, but on the character of God. This is cool. He says, since Christ is one and the Spirit is one, and since the Trinity is one in essence, the very visible expression of Christ's body, body or church, ought to be one one as well. Paul and Paul and Corinth, is Christ, Christ divided? No, no, there is one body, one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. In other words, what Jesus is, it's Jesus is picking up this as well. When he delivers that prayer he prays right before he goes to the cross, people call it the high priestly prayer. You ever heard that referred to? Um, it's right before he goes to the cross. He's in the room with his, with his, with his, with his men, his disciples, and he, preaches his, or he prays this prayer. And one of the main things he's asking for is that everybody be on the same page, that we be unified over and over again. But he, the way he phrases it is interesting because what he says is, is he prays for those who will believe in me through these men's message. It's really cool. It's the first time you can see Jesus like literally praying for you <laughs> in the Bible. Go read it. It's awesome. Um, that the, all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. We could do a whole lesson on that one about the unity of, 
of us with the, with the Trinity. And here's what it says. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me. Think about how he phrases that. I want them to be unified around this very specific self-definition of who I am. In other words, he's not saying we need to have unity for unity's sake. Rather, it is a unity around Jesus' character. Unity is always unity around the truth. It's around something. Unity does not work as a concept disassociated from the thing in which you are believing. By the way, this is how your friendships happen too. You ever thought about this? This is a good little C.S. Lewis zinger from the side here. Um, C.S. Lewis says that the way in which you have a friend is not to focus on the friend. Do you ever know that person in high school who wanted to have friends so badly that they didn't have any friends? Remember that person? Because they're so insecure about it, they kind of were repellent to people. That's not how you make friends. You don't have friends by focusing on friends. You make friends by the two of you discovering that you're focused on the same thing. You ever notice that? You like that that show too? Oh my gosh, we love this kind of music. You want to go to that concert together? You became friends with people because you had, in Lewis's words, a common horizon, a place you were both headed to. And as you journeyed along, notice what's happening. As you journeyed towards that goal, you got closer to each other. And you felt close. You felt a sense of camaraderie with that person. Jesus is saying the same thing about my people. We don't get unified by being like, we've got to work harder on being unified. Yeah, we can probably talk about the problem of mumbling, the problem of grumbling, which has always been a part of God's people, the problem of lying to ourselves and to others. Yeah, we can talk about that. But in the end, the way in which we are most unified is by holding up the true Jesus of Scripture and calling all men to himself. I say that because a lot of times there'll be unity movements that'll happen among God's people. And praise the Lord for them. We all need to be passionate about those. But sometimes they're a little bit wrong-headed. They're a little bit wrong-headed because what they do is they get us distracted from what it's about. Because if the church is a body, it means that our very identity is wrapped up in who Jesus is. The unity of the church goes straight to the issue of human identity. What are you primarily? We constitute a fellowship on the shallowest of means in our world, don't we? (laughs) Frankly, many of us made attempts to build marriages on the basis of very shallow attempts. I mean, he's just so sweet to me. She is gorgeous. You know, because anybody who's older than, well, older than me, um, is going to be like, you know, both those things go away. (laughs) People are horribly unpleasant, and I don't look, the older I get, I don't like the way I look anymore. We build it on the shallowest of things. Real friendship, though, is, the real unity is around what we are uh, in Christ. Jesus' community is unified around knowing him. Yeah, It's one of the reasons why all of a sudden this weird thing happened in the New Testament where people began to be friends that they would otherwise never be friends with. <laughs> the Apostle Paul all of a sudden starts to hang out with <gasps> Gentiles. Seriously, y'all. Y'all. Um, you know, they were touching food that you're not supposed to touch. All kinds of stuff. He was like, you know, having all these biracial discussions. <gasps> it was one of the biggest shocking parts of the New Testament, as the book of Ephesians will tell you later. Mm. So the church is a body. That wasn't quite as, quite as anxiety-producing as the other one. This is a nice one. Let's do the church as a bride. This is a, we'll end on a high note here. Uh, Ephesians 5.25. In the interest of time, I'm not going to read this. 
But Isaiah 62, 5 says, As a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now, the Trinity is not like your marriage. Thank goodness. (laughs) Your marriage is supposed to be in the pattern of the Trinity. That's what it's saying. Again, you're like, well, but we got two sinners here. Agreed. Um, But what God is saying is, is I gave you marriage so that you could know what it's like for me to love you. That's why I gave you this. Again, don't make too many associations from that. That's a different lesson. But the bottom line is God is saying that I am leading my church to sort of crescendo, as it were, in this great moment of me being the groom and the church, collectively speaking, being a bride. She comes to the Father as if she is a bride in Revelation 19. And in Revelation 20, it comes to us even as a city uh, that's coming to the Lord. A fascinating discussion. But the bottom line is, this, 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 this unity of the body, this idea of being the church, had its foundation in someone loving you. Uh, Brian Sorgenfry, the RUF campus minister here at Ole Miss, and I have great uh, seats for weddings. And it is an occupational hazard when you do campus ministry to do weddings, lots and lots of weddings. Uh, some, some of you here have officiated your wedding. It was the most delightful experience of my entire life. Let me tell you that, okay? Um, but one of the reasons why it's so delightful is because we have the best seat in the house. It really is awesome. Because you get to stand up here at the head of this aisle, and you've got the young, poor sucker right here right beside you to your left, and you kind of got your, your Bible open. And all of a sudden, you get to kind of watch those doors swing open. And invariably, you know, Ginger and I have kind of gotten to this point where you can measure the quality of a groom by his reaction to the doors coming open. So if he yawns, that's bad. Be a terrible husband. But if he does what I've seen happen over and over and over again, where all of a sudden, like for the first time, like the enormity of the moment kind of washes over this dude, and because he's a dude, he's never learned to deal with his emotions ever. And so it's all bottled up inside him, and suddenly it just kind of, kind of comes on. He just starts crying. It's coming down his eyes. He's trying to keep himself together. But she's so beautiful and so amazing. That's the image that Jesus is dealing with. But over and over again, I would find college students kind of reversing that image, and they're being like, oh, you're so right, Les. I... We should really feel that way about Jesus. I wish my heart broke, and I cried for Jesus when I saw him. That's actually not the image. (laughs) You got it reversed. No, no, no. You're the one at the end of the aisle. Jesus is the one at the front. Jesus is the one with the tears streaming down his face. How, How blown away he is at the loveliness of what he has made in you. And that little idea that God, the God who I know holds my judgment over me rightly, could actually fall in love with me in that way and not just tolerate me. This is what I always like to go on. Come on, you've, you've, you've faced times in your marriages where you're like, we're just trying to hold it together. I'm just trying to be in the same room with her. I, I, I'm just trying not to burst into tears when he comes home. I recognize that happens. But there was a time, isn't there at least a dream of that person who looks at you in the midst of all of your flaws and all of your failures and all the things that have gone wrong between the two of you and just been like, wow, you still blow me away. Because that little nugget of an idea that someone might see something beautiful in me was what motivated these believers to get together and be like, did you hear that? You heard it too? You found out that 
Jesus loves even screwed up people like us and died for us and rose again to bring us newness of life? What? You found that out too and suddenly began to be friends with those people and suddenly the church was unified. In other words, you only get to the identity of the church when it's built around joy. Joy's got to be it's got to be all in the soup. <laughs> it's got to be in the center of it all. And I re- don't hear me saying that, that we're supposed to skip into church on Sunday mornings after screaming at my children and you know, cursing my spouse and my life. And, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying that. But at least it ought to be home base. What is home base for this? Christ Presbyterian Church in Oxford. What, where is like a, where's the safety place? Where we go to and be like, look, we're going to have all kinds of fights. Do y'all realize we're about to build a building? We're going to spend millions of dollars on this. And do you realize that there are opinions that are inside of you that you don't even know yet about yet? <laughs> you don't even realize they're there. But suddenly, somebody's going to make some decision. You know, I cannot believe they chose that color. <laughs> do you like these pews? This hurts me. I'm so glad we spent $7 million on that. <laughs> And that stuff is going to come up out of you. Where is home base? Where is home base? In a marriage, what's interesting is you go back and you're like, hmm, it's home base. I made a promise about richer and poor and better and worse and sickness and health. That's home base. With a Christian, it's kind of the same way. Home base is the joy that Jesus loves sinners. That ought to be the center of what we're doing. Hmm. Well, here's all the outline, since I forgot to click on these. Honeymoon affections. Power of joy to unify. There we go. What are some implications? All right, here's some thoughts about what it means to be the church in the world. Really quickly for this, and we'll have time for questions. The church is the center of God's activity in the world. This is the theater for God's action for God's people. Um, We have to move past individualistic Christianity. Christianity is not about your relationship with Jesus. It's part of that. But it's not only you. Is there space in your mind for a collective you and us? Is there space there? Some sociologists in the last 20, 30 years, especially Robert Bella, uh, I read his Habits of the Heart when I was in college, says that we've even lost a language of community. Everything is individualistic. Uh, we, 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 Sorgen will do a talk sometime on, um, on therapeutic um, uh, therapeutic. Um, what, what, uh, uh, individualism. No, it's, it's um, what's the little phrase people have started using now? Say again? Therapeutic deism? Yeah, there's, yeah, therapeutic deism. That's what it was. Sorgen probably going to explain all that soon. He's so smart like that. Number two, the church is the fundamental social construct of the Christian. Now, here's where I lose you. Um, there is nothing that goes more to the core of your identity than this. What are you most basically? I'm a proud uh, black man, someone might say. Um, I am the mother to my children. Uh, I, what are you? What is, your, what, what is the most basic sense of who you are as a Christian? For, Christ, uh, for a Christian, it's got to be being a Christian. And if that's the case, it means that what we do here is as real as it gets. I know you don't like that. But that's what we're saying. This is as real as I get when I come and gather with my people. 
And one of the things we have to face up to the fact, and this is just us being honest, is that frankly, a lot of us came to church so that people would not ask us questions about who we were. Your attendance here takes the scrutiny off of you. Uh, because now no one will ask, because I'm at church. <clears throat> and I'm, I go to Christ Presbyterian, thank you very much. I don't need you asking me questions about my personal life and my marriage. Number three, the church, therefore, is concerned with things that are churchy. <laughs> That's a very technical, theological word for it. Churchy. Determining what those are is going to be really key to our discussion about what it means to be the church in the world. Think about this for a second. If we're centered around being a building, a body, and a bride, and that really is the core of our identity, what does that mean? What does that mean about what we are to do? Finally, when Christians gather with the church, she arrives at her true home. Her true home. I love the fact that in CPC's identity statement, we talk about it. You started to hear the elders say it on a regular basis. We want to be a home for those who have found hope in Christ. And a place where that hope is offered all. It's a home. And that's not smarmy, like, y'all, it's just so homey here. When is the Christmas pageant? Um, That's not what we're talking about, is, is the vibe that you feel. What we're saying is, for better or worse, when we walk into this place and I get around these other believers, God is telling me that this is as fundamental as it gets. And if you're weirded out by that, that means we've got some work to do, doesn't it? About what this means. The disparity between this truth and our daily life. You ever felt yourself walking out of church and being like, well, well, preacher, maybe you said this to Colonel Way. Well, preacher, you know, it's been nice to be here today, but tomorrow I gotta go back to the real world. <laughs> I've heard people say that kind of thing before. Isn't that interesting choice of words? So, so, so tomorrow's the real world. What was this? <laughs> it's the imaginary world? Play pretend world? Which, which is more fundamental to who you are? Your law practice or who you are as a Christian here? Now, if you heard me say, don't you dare give that much time to your law practice, that is not what I'm saying. I'm asking about a sense of priority. Where does it get the closest to being me? Yes. Reveals how much trouble we're going to have figuring out how to act in the world. In many ways, the hardest part of this is trying to figure out who we are as the body of Christ. All right, so what do we got here? We got time, don't we? Mm -hmm. Oh, we do. I left about 10 minutes for questions. Any thoughts? I think I actually wrote down some questions here. Yeah, what did you grow up with as your view of the church, if any? Or even what would you say was instinctual to you as your your view of the church? What uh, what was presented to you as far as uh, this idea of it? Good people went to church, bad people didn't go to church. Good people went to church, bad people didn't go to church. Did you ever have that experience where you were like on the road and... um, for whatever reason, you couldn't find a church while you were out there, and so you, you went to Waffle House with your family. You know, we're going to kind of skip church this morning, so we're going to be at Waffle House. And you kind of go in, and it's a little weird. You're like, so what are they doing while we're all over there? <laughs> you ready for this? They're having a great time. <laughs> Waffle House is where all the action is happening, right? That's what, this, is, this is what it means to be good. Like, nobody's going to ask me questions about my life because I'm in this place. What else? I wonder if anybody would be willing to share a story you know, where, where the church either like totally came through for you or maybe even disappointed you. We're all big pants people. It might be the Sunday school. Dis- Sunday school totally disappointed me this morning. I just want you to know that. 
did the church show itself to be um, fundamental to? Yeah, Doug? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if there's anything that Christ President would be congratulated for, it's that aspect as well. Like, do you think that training your face to light up when you see another person, do you think that's mundane? It really isn't. There's a lot of frowns out there in the world. <laughs> and their hope is, is that if someone can come to a place and know that they're welcome. Y'all have heard me do my little thing on Paul and the holy kiss? Do you realize four times in the Bible, Paul is like, greet one another with a holy kiss. And it makes parishioners very nervous. They're like, uh, I'm not going to kiss anybody except my wife. Um, are we going to start doing that now? Is that the next thing we're going to do? No. What Paul is saying is, find a culturally appropriate way to let someone know that you're glad to see them. It might be that you hug their neck or something. You don't know what, you, you don't know what I went through this week. I don't know what you went through this week. It may be the fact that I even communicate in my face, I'm glad to see you, might be a measure of huge healing. So in other words, if we don't think of the church as my fundamental identity, it might be a big piece of it. One of the reasons why the church doesn't necessarily mean much to, to people is because our life hasn't gotten difficult yet. And we've not seen people really turn on us. Yeah, Susan? Mm-hmm. It's funny, I was actually just reading yesterday on some of these very topics about church unity and how people strive for that or how we fail to arrive at that. Um, it's a big, long question. You have a gift for that, Susan. I always love your questions. Um, um, I'll simply say this. Um, it is not in the realm of possibility, it, nor should it be in the realm of expectation that you join the perfect church. Um, because the funny thing is, is if you join the perfect church, if you find the perfect church and join it, the fact that you joined it just messed it all up. Um, in other words, the question is not, are we getting to a body that has no conflict? I think the question is, is are we in a body that is healthy enough to sustain and not perpetuate the problem so that we become like what the therapists refer to as chronically anxious? You, know, you have sort of a body that can be chronically anxious where everybody's tense, everybody's weirded out, everybody knows what the story is. Everybody knows who the problem is, but instead of dealing with those things, we're all walking around like this, and what we're doing is we're, we're enabling it. So the question is, how do we become sort of a healthy system? And here's the deal. This is why I kind of threw in the little zinger about the building. You are going to be disappointed in the building. I am going to be disappointed in the building. We are all, to some measure, going to be challenged by doing something as big as this building. The question is not... Are we going to have conflict about this? Of course we're going to have conflict about this. The question is, is are we going to exercise maturity about what it means for us to be together, to avoid the grumbling as much as we can, to avoid like roping in other people on our opinion when we're really just ticked off at that person? You know, if me and Peyton are irritated at each other, that's one thing. <laughs> but if all of a sudden I go to Sorgan Fry and kind of like, have you heard what Peyton is doing with this new building? Suddenly it's all jacked up, isn't it? Therapists call that a triangle. <laughs> you get triangles going on all over the church. And then guess what? Everybody gets anxious and everybody gets freaked out. It's not whether or not we have conflict. It's whether or not we can as a body function well with God's admonition for dealing with people honestly and openly, for forgiving people as much as we can, for letting things roll off my back when I can, but then standing for the right things. All that stuff is what's in front of us. It's a... It's a, it's a process that's monitored over years. <clears throat> but I think we're about to be tested on it. So, all right, let me pray for us. And we've got about 15 minutes before we head for worship. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, thank you for, thank you for this, this, um, this idea. You said, that, um, you said to us while you were here that um, you, your church would go marching out, that you were going to build the foundation on your church on this confession that Peter made about you being its Messiah and that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. And those gates are defensive things. It assumes that we're out marching on the kingdom of Satan. And so we pray that we would figure out who we are. (laughs) Uh, Our families have to figure out who we are. We have to figure out who we are. Help Christ Presbyterian Church, Lord Jesus. Pour your spirit out on us. And and, and keep us from from thinking that we have a superficial unity. Uh, But make that unity about who you are, centered in the joy, but also make it built around this idea that We're a caretaker for the next generation of bringing the Word of God to the next generation. What a big task, but you're a big God, so we'll rest in you to be able to do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.